You are listening to the golden age of aviation with Breitling, chronicling and celebrating all that was best about commercial airline travel during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. This was an era powered by the advances of the jet age, then later inspired by the advent of supersonic travel that saw civil aviation soar to new heights of efficiency, luxury and romance. So far on the series, we've heard from the people who know the history, the personalities and the legends inside out. And today we're going to look at one of the most groundbreaking developments in aviation during this period. Supersonic, the fastest passenger planes in the world. This is the Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling and I'm Chloe Potter. As the world was growing smaller and smaller post-war, aeroplane design was developing faster and faster until it literally hit the speed of sound. Supersonic technology was used mostly for military or experimental aviation, but plenty of designs were being dreamed up for commercial purposes too. Then, in the late 1960s, two finally took off. A Soviet plane called the Tupolev Tu-144 and, of course, the Anglo-French offering, Concorde. We'll have more on those two specific aircraft later, but first, to find out a bit more about the highs and lows of supersonic in commercial flying, Tom Edwards speaks to broadcaster and aviation expert Sean Maffett. An aeroplane is described as going supersonic when it's going faster than the speed of sound, which is about 750 miles an hour at sea level and perhaps 650 miles an hour at the kind of operating height that most airliners fly at. And when you approach the speed of sound, big shock waves build up on the front of the aircraft and they first of all cause the aircraft to buffet quite a bit. And then when you get through that sound barrier, as it's often called, the buffeting stops. And if you have enough power in your aeroplane and it's the right shape and everything, then you can just keep on accelerating. And I guess if we could talk a little bit about its its history, well, maybe to many observers, a sadly short history of its use in, in commercial aviation. Was it one of these classic examples of technology where it was military applications that drove the advances before it ever got into a commercial conversation? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the, the fastest ever flight with jet engines took place in 1967. So all, all those years ago, an American military aircraft called the X-15, which actually flew at more than six times the speed of sound. That's more than 5,000 miles an hour. So the military have been doing this for quite a while. And it was then thought that this ought to have you know, commercial applications. And people started talking about supersonic airliners, SSTs, as they were called, supersonic transport of which there were really only ever two uh, successful ones, um, the Russian uh, Tu-144 and, of course, Concorde. To anybody who is a fan of aviation, such as myself, Concorde was extraordinary, quite apart from the technology involved. It was the most astonishingly beautiful piece of equipment. I used to commentate at the Royal International Air Tattoo at Fairford, one of the biggest military air shows in the world, but it did have civilian aircraft. And one year, Concorde was hired to take a whole bunch of lucky people out from Heathrow, go supersonic over the Western approaches, and then come in to land at Fairford during the air show. And I can remember watching this thing come in, and in order for it to 
come at slow speed, well, comparatively slow speed, about 185 miles an hour, which is what it did on landing, it would have to have its nose well up in the air because it didn't have any things like slats and flaps on the wings because they had to go supersonic. And in order for the pilots to be able to see, the nose had to be drooped to something like 20 degrees down. So the nose was bent down so the pilots could see the runway. And with this aircraft perched up, looking almost like a swan, with its nose down, pointing at the ground and coming gracefully in and then touching down on the runway. It was an absolutely unbelievable sight and I've never forgotten it. Well, I wanted to ask you next about Concorde there, Sean. You've led us very elegantly to it. And this is a rise and I guess a demise which has been fairly well chronicled. I guess just taking a step back, it's still kind of hard to believe that it's 50 odd years, isn't it, since that first flight. Can you give us a sense of the kind of hope, the investment that was made into that aircraft, not just to the technical side that you've already talked about, but in terms of what it kind of meant for for aviation and almost for for man's conquest of global travel? It it was something more than just the, the technology, right? Absolutely. There was a huge romance to the whole thing. Actually, they agreed that they were going to produce Concorde way back in 1960. And two years later, they decided that it was going to be so expensive and so difficult to do that two major aircraft companies, BAC, British Aircraft Corporation, and Sud Aviation from France, had to merge in order to make this machine. And the idea was to get it to to cross the Atlantic in about half the time that was being done by airliners at the time. So in 1969 then, British and French prototypes of Concorde appeared at the Paris Air Show. And it's interesting to note that was the same year that the the old 747, the jumbo jet, first flew. So, you know, we're talking really quite a long time ago. The uh, In April 69, the British prototype had flown from Fairford, from Filton to Fairford for its development flying. And both of these prototypes had got to Mark II, i.e. twice the speed of sound, which was about 1,520 miles an hour. And of course, it wasn't just the Europeans who were developing this. The Americans were trying to develop it. They were trying to develop an even faster aircraft with Concorde going at Mark II. The American ones would have gone at Mark III. But then they discovered this problem of the sonic boom, because one of the effects of an aircraft traveling at more than the speed of sound is that those shock waves which are being formed at the front of the aircraft uh, stream back off the aircraft and they get when they hit the ground they make this quite distinctive sonic boom it almost sounds like an explosion and the americans first of all and then the rest of the world said well we're not having that over land you're not going to be allowed to fly supersonic over land which meant that only a trip that involved a lot of sea travel, such as, for instance, London to New York, uh, was going to be feasible for Concorde if they weren't going to be able to be supersonic over the land. Because once a supersonic aircraft is flying at less than supersonic speeds, it becomes very inefficient and uses a whole lot more fuel. Zooming across the Atlantic in just under three hours, the first commercial Concords took off from Paris and London in the late 1960s. It was the beginning of supersonic air travel, faster than the Earth's rotation, that set a new standard for high-end flying. It's been over 15 years since the last Concorde touched down at Heathrow Airport in London, but the glamour, technology and lifestyle of the Concorde remain very much alive in today's world. 
Lawrence Azarad is a Grammy Award-winning graphic designer based in Los Angeles and an aficionado of all things Concord. With over 1,000 items in his personal collection, he put together the history and mystique of this exceptional aircraft in the book Supersonic, The Design and Lifestyle of Concord. Monocle's Carlotta Rabello met with Lawrence at his studio in downtown LA to find out more. Very simply, Concord looked like a cross between a swan and a Brancusi sculpture in one. It looked like a paper airplane that was kind of the, a beautiful sculpture. My interest in the Concord was actually kind of more gradual. It, of course, it was remarkable in noticing its shape. It was so unique compared to any other airplanes, you know, with its pointed nose and delta wings. Everything about it looked fast, it looked like speed. But then it was the type of thing where the more you learned about the Concorde, the more your fascination grew with it. Uh, the fact that you could fly faster than the rotation of the Earth, the fact that it flew twice the speed of sound, the fact that it flew at 60,000 feet, as close as you could get to being in outer space than any other airplane. All of this kind of led to the romance, intrigue, and captivation of Concorde for me. As a child of the 70s, I just remember it being kind of a part of the zeitgeist and part of the culture, popping up in pictures, newspapers, movies, advertisements, whereas you don't really see that for a 737, but it just was kind of around. Aside from, of course, the speed at which you would get to a destination, what was the thing that made the Concorde so unique? There were many things about it that made it so unique, but after Concorde failed to become a commercial success where this was going to be a widespread format of travel, the airlines had to turn to design to make it this exceptionally unique experience. So many people don't know that the original idea was that there was going to be many, many Concords, that everyone was going to be flying around supersonically. Once that didn't happen, then they, they used design as far as hiring the best designers in the world, Raymond Lowy, Andre Putnam, Terence Conran, to design every single thing you touched. So there was this kind of ecosystem of design, uh, everything from the luggage tags to the silverware to the menus to your, your seat belts. Uh, nothing went without the same kind of consideration and forethought that embodied everything Concord was about. I was about to ask you about that, the particular designers that collaborated with Concord. Can you describe who did what and how things look like, just for our listeners to get a better idea of what we're talking here. Certainly. The, Raymond Lowy was tapped first by Air France, and of course he's known as kind of somewhat as the father of uh, industrial design, famous for designing, say, the Coca-Cola vending machine or the Steamline locomotive. But Raymond Lowy designed the interiors and created somewhat of a sleek elegance that was uh, futuristic and elegant at the same time. Something that you might see on the set of a Stanley Kubrick movie from 2001. In addition to designing the textiles for the seats and the fabrics, he famously designed these elegant forks and knives that were kind of as, as beautiful as the airplane itself. And these were 
favorites of Andy Warhol to steal that um, and he was Warhol being a pack rat if, if you weren't taking your silverware and we're sitting next to Warhol he would take your set of silverware too but uh, the spoon looked kind of like a lollipop and everything was just kind of had this whimsy and elegance to it of course most notable is the interior design that Terence Conran did at and the last iteration of design for for Concord. His seats were these navy blue leather, beautiful, tight, firm, sleek seats. Everybody is somewhat surprised by the size of Concord. It's very small inside, and when people complain about that, it's it, I kind of have to laugh to myself because you're really talking about a fighter jet holding a hundred people, which is really kind of a miraculous thing. So the economy of space and the economy of scale and economy of design is very important. So the effort that these designers had to go to, to design things that were beautiful, but also sleek, they went to great lengths to kind of carry that balance out. So instead of something like a flying couch that you would see in a first class sweet now it was much more like the seat of a ferrari or a porsche compared to that of a bentley or a rolls royce you paint a, a really great picture of how the interiors look like i'm curious to know like how was the lifestyle then aboard concord well you just have to imagine it as the best restaurant experience you could possibly go to uh, all while you're traveling literally faster than a speeding bullet you could cross the Atlantic in just under three hours, which was just about enough time for the perfect lunch service or, or dinner service. And it, the, the, I got the sense that the staff and the cabin crew of Concord were somewhat almost like the, the ultra elite, the SEAL team, the paratroopers of uh, the, the airlines, where they could have almost that anticipatory understanding of what you might need or uh, that certain discreet grace about taking care of you in just the perfect amount of way. If you needed more beverage refilled or just about anything, they there was just this kind of comfortable elegance in the way they kind of anticipated your needs. Did you ever fly Concorde? I did. I went on my 30th birthday. It was the shortest birthday of my life because I went counter rotation to the earth and left New York at nine in the morning and got to England at about 5 p.m. It's also important to remember that the Concord lounges were very much part of the Concord experience. So in the case of British Airways, this was also designed by uh, Conran and Associates. So you would go into this room that was this beautiful uh, extension of the Concorde experience where everything from passport control to TSA, I flew after 9-11 um, control, uh, everything was, was separate. And there was this kind of speed and elegance and grace and you would just kind of have this beautiful breakfast and read your newspaper and you're sitting in this room surrounded by icons of design of the 20th century such as Eames lounge chairs and Bauhaus lamps. And all the while you're looking out the window and one of the great icons of 20th century design is, is parked right there before you get on it. So it was, it was very much a kind of continuous experience. Do you know of any um, interesting or funny anecdotes of anything that happened while the Concorde was in service? Absolutely. Well, 
Paul McCartney used, was known to pull out his uh, guitar and lead the whole airplane in Beatles sing-alongs. Uh, in our book, Cindy Crawford tells a story about um, falling asleep because she was so tired from her modeling gig that she, she fell asleep right away. And then when she woke up, she realized that she was sitting next to Mick Jagger. Concord kind of created this environment for strange proximities where you'd be up there with Henry Kissinger and um, Paul McCartney and, and Prince all on one flight and Diana Ross. There's one anecdote that I heard about from the music industry where they debuted David Bowie's Let's Dance for the first time and took all the radio personnel from, from the UK out and chartered the Concorde and took off and played the song for the first time. And when they landed, Bowie was there at the gate to meet them. But I think just no matter who you were, if you were a head of state or a head of industry or a head of rock and media, there was still something special about it and still this kind of like exclusive, exceptional experience. Now, you do have a lot of Concord memorabilia. Uh, what are some of your favorites? Well, as a graphic designer myself, I'm most attracted to the elements that are graphic design. Uh, the, the, there's beautiful brochures from Air France that kind of paint this picture of the lifestyle. But even more than that, um, a lot, uh, Concord represented this idea of tomorrow, this idea of optimism, this idea of a better future. So to me, the graphic design that reflects those principles give me the most thrill. There, I have advertisements for everything from motor oil to tires and spark plugs, everything, you know, quotidian things that still have the same kind of exuberance and passion and optimism just in their graphic design that, that is kind of invigorating to see that kind of uh, enthusiasm uh, trickle down to all these other elements. Also toys that children have that are that, that the idea that kids would be playing with these tin Concord toys but everything about the graphics and the packaging uh, has this um, enthusiasm for fast the future the speed it's better it's tomorrow it's here it's now how did you feel when uh, it um, was decommissioned the Concord well it was very sad in our design history we rarely go backwards at the last flight for Concord Uh, 10,000 people showed up at Heathrow to watch the last ones touch down and to see people crying and this much affection for a vehicle is kind of staggering. It stood as a beacon of possibility, an emblem of hope, and this idea that it's been 20 years since it's really been a reality is, is really quite shocking. So it was a closed chapter in history and, and in some ways kind of puzzling that we don't have something like this anymore. Of course, there will be new innovations in travel, but Concord was this one kind of pocket that was born out of this era of optimism. And, and the idea that that chapter is closed is, is somewhat disappointing. The thing about Concord was it actually was a reality. And these other ideas still remain very much in the concept stage and concepts for the very few. Um, if you look at, you know, Virgin Galactic or, or um, Blue Origin, you know, these, these, these kind of next generations of, of traveling in the future will remain for the few. But what, what a lot of people don't understand about the Concord story is that it was created with the idea that it would be for everyone. And the, I, the idea that there was this kind of utopian ideal behind the next logical step in transportation is what was driving Concord. 
That was the graphic designer and founder of LAD design studio Lawrence Azarad, and he was speaking to Monocle's Carlotta Rabello. His book, Supersonic, The Design and Lifestyle of Concord, is published by Prestel and is out now. As we mentioned at the top of the programme, a Soviet design was also one of the early players in supersonic passenger aircraft. The Tupolev Tu-144 intended to show the world the superiority of communism. The spaceship-style jet first took to the air in December 1968, three months before its Western rival. But whereas Concorde went on to have a long and distinguished service life, the Tu-144 dubbed Concordsky by Western observers for its visual similarities to the Anglo-French jet, was grounded 10 years later in 1978, after just 102 commercial flights. This was down to a variety of reasons, including some serious design flaws, high fuel consumption and a high-profile disaster at the 1973 Paris Air Show, which took place in front of the world's press. But the 2144 remains an important part of aviation history and a testament to the Soviet aircraft industry that managed to create such a complex airliner at a time when most of the country's technical resources were being thrown into the space race. Monocle's Alexei Koryalov visited the Tupolev Design Bureau in Moscow to find out more. It's 1961 and the Soviet Union has just beaten the US in the race to get the first man into space. The whole world is mesmerized by Soviet engineering. But already there's a new race happening. On the other side of the Iron Curtain, the British and the French are about to begin development of a new type of passenger aircraft. One that will be able to fly at more than twice the speed of sound. By this time, the USSR had already made a military jet that broke the sound barrier, the MIG-21, and it was not going to be upstaged now. Valery Solozobov is the deputy director of the Tupolev Design Bureau in Moscow. In 1962, the firm, as he calls it, was ordered by the Soviet government to come up with a response to the Anglo-French project. It came to be known as the TU-144. The problem was that when both designs were finally presented to the public, they looked almost identical, with the same delta-shaped wings and droop-snoot nose. This prompted Western observers, who were convinced that the Soviets couldn't possibly have done it on their own, to accuse Tupolev of industrial espionage. But Valery Solozobov says that wasn't the case. It was a matter of healthy technical competition. There was never any espionage. All information was openly available, and the fact we had a very friendly relationship with the French proves that. And the Soviets won again, or so it seemed. The Tu-144 was first in the air, beating Concorde by three months. But it had many teething troubles. While it looked very similar to Concorde on the surface, it was less sophisticated on the inside. With much of the Soviet technical resources thrown into the ongoing space race with the US, the engineers behind the Tu-144 just couldn't match Concorde's cutting-edge technologies. The main area where they lagged behind was the engine. The Soviet engine was actually more powerful than Concorde's, but it just burned too much fuel, which meant, for instance, that the Tu-144 couldn't fly to the Russian Far East as originally intended. 
The first production models had a high bypass ratio engine from the Kuznetsov Design Bureau, but it was very uneconomical, and so we could only fly from Moscow to Almaty in Kazakhstan, that's about 3,500 kilometers. Then another engine was developed by the Kulesov firm, but by then, unfortunately, the program had been stopped. The Tu-144 was also bigger and less aerodynamic than Concorde, and it didn't have Concorde's computer-controlled wings. The 1973 Paris Air Show only made matters worse for the Soviets. The Concorde and Tupolev teams were champing at the bit to see who could put on the best flying display. But when the Tu-144 took to the air on the last day of the show, disaster struck. It climbed steeply before suddenly diving down. And as the pilots tried to pull up from the dive, the plane tore itself to pieces and crashed. The Tu-144's international image was permanently tarnished. The Soviet authorities were also becoming worried. It took another four years for the Tu-144 to start taking passengers. But it quickly became apparent that it was more trouble than it was worth. And in 1978, after only 55 passenger flights, the Tu-144 was grounded forever. Tupolev's Valery Solozobov says the Soviet aviation minister at the time, Boris Bugayev, never liked the project and was more than happy to shut it down. Bugayev was against this plane from the very beginning. He said it was too expensive, he said we didn't need it, he said it produced problems such as the sonic boom and excessive noise, and then there was the Paris tragedy. All these factors which were normal for a new plane were used to put an end to it. But despite her many technical flaws, the Tu-144 was still a pioneering design and a credit to the Soviet aviation industry. Valery Solozobov says it paved the way for many subsequent aircraft, including Tupolev's own Tu-160 long-range bomber. The Soviet Concorde had a brief afterlife in the 1990s, when it was retrofitted for a joint research project between NASA and Russia's space agency. And it may come in handy again. There's renewed interest in supersonic travel, with several US aerospace companies working to create quieter and more fuel-efficient supersonic jets. But is it really going to happen? Valery Solozobov says he's not so sure. Yes, technically it's all feasible. What's more, some of the problems that were difficult back then can now be solved quite easily. But this is not a question for engineers, it is a question for society. Does the world really need this? So far, we're only seeing a demand from the business sector. Only the future will tell. For Monocle in Moscow, I'm Alexey Korolev. To end the programme, we're going to hear once more from Sean Maffett. Why did this technology that was built on so much excitement and promise start to fall out of favour? And does it have a part to play in the future of commercial aviation? Well, there were certainly fears and worries about the damage it was doing in the upper stratosphere. But I think that the glamour sort of overtook the whole thing until, of course, that big crash in France, which was uh, in July of 2000, when and Air France Concorde had trouble taking off from Paris and the whole thing developed into an absolute disaster with the aircraft on fire and um, all 109 on board were killed and another four people on the ground. And that was the beginning of the end for Concorde. It, it was heavily modified after that. Is this one area where something that was a quantum leap almost ahead of all that came before became obsolete. I mean, there's so few things. If you look at uh, automotive engineering or all sorts of other areas, uh, telecommunications, where something's so manifestly better as a customer experience in terms of shrinking the journey time, 
it just wasn't possible to build around it. Was that foreseeable? Were there those who who said, look, this isn't a sustainable long-term solution? And I don't know, do we just have to accept that, you know, these were halcyon days we won't see the likes of again? Well, people were saying that. And of course, the Americans, having decided that they couldn't go ahead with their version of supersonic transport in the way that they have, they they put a lot of barriers in Concorde's way. And the no supersonic flying over land was one of them. And that severely limited what could be done. However, although there has not been a supersonic transport since Concorde finished. There are several in development at the moment. They're all much smaller. I mean, Concorde, as I say, was pretty small, only 120 passengers. But a company called Boom Technology is developing an aircraft slightly faster than Concorde for 55 passengers. And there are other things like an Aerion and a Spike. So they're basically business jets. But they are in development and they are due to fly. Well, for instance, the Aerion due to come into service in, in 2025. And in fact, the boom technology aircraft is having a third scale model, which should fly this year. And these are working on reduced sonic boom. They've got a new technology to reduce the impact of the sonic boom, which may allow these aircraft to fly. But I think the idea of getting an airliner of anywhere near practical size is pretty far away, if ever it's going to happen. Because these days, of course, we, you know, we're quite used to having airliners with 400 and 500 people on board. Uh, We're never going to get a supersonic aircraft doing that, at least not in the foreseeable future. Well, there's the rupture. And I wanted to sort of end by asking you a little bit about the future, even the even the long range future of, of aviation. Can there be a supersonic solution then? I mean, you've talked about Boom, Arian, Spike, et al., you know, these much smaller, very much niche players. I guess that's part of the future and that could be supersonic but the dream that many had through the well from the post-war period really through to the to the late 60s it sounds like that's it must remain a pipe dream well i suspect that may be the case however further into the future uh, we may get hypersonic aircraft um aircraft that do basically what ballistic missiles do uh, they just get shot up beyond the stratosphere and go into sort of suborbital conditions and travel at mark 5 and mark 6 I don't think we're anywhere near doing that, but that is probably the more likely future than just developing the aircraft with jet engines. But of course, it is a long way ahead. That was Sean Maffett bringing us to the end of this episode of The Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling. To find out more about the programme, you can head to monocle.com or subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud and all your other favourite audio sources. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and I'm Chloe Potter. Join us again in two weeks' time, but until then, wherever you are and wherever you're headed next, bon voyage. Bon voyage.